Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Michael Talbot and I'm joined today at the Hellenic Centre in London by Calliope Amigdalu, who's a lecturer in architecture at the Izmir Institute of Technology. Calliope, welcome finally to uh, your very own podcast on the Ottoman History Podcast. It's so nice to be here. Thank you. Well, let's get started straight away by talking about your research. So you've been working on a, a doctoral thesis that thinks about um, a number of cities in comparison in the Ottoman Empire and the post-Ottoman world, specifically uh, Izmir and Thessaloniki. So could you perhaps tell us a bit about your project and how you came to compare these two cities? I looked into their transition from the empire, from empire to nation state, but I did not exactly do a comparison. Uh, in fact, that was one of my main methodological problems, and uh, many uh, maybe researchers out there will um, understand uh, what I'm saying. At the moment you start using the word comparison, uh, all sorts of nightmares start. <laughs> yes, I did start out uh, thinking that I was comparing these two cities, but uh, as the thesis proceeded, I started questioning uh, why and what what is going to come out of uh, such a comparison. Um, finally, I moved towards a relational approach. Um, so I started, I put a third uh, node in the system, I added Paris to the equation, and I started looking at how these uh, three nodes, three cities, Paris, Izmir and Thessaloniki, interacted uh, with each other and influenced each other. So um, while looking in parallel, the relation of Thessaloniki to the West and the relation of the relationship that Izmir started developing with the West f during the transition from empire to nation state, I m at the same time looked at the a relationship of repulsion or even connections that came about between Izmir and Thessaloniki. So basically, I worked on this uh, triangle. Hmm. And you you might ask why Paris? The reason is that both cities went through huge. Uh, devastation, physical devastation, during this transition from empire to nation state or close to this transition. Thessaloniki was burnt down in 1917 and Izmir uh, was destroyed by fire. The Izmir Center was destroyed by fire in 1922. And they were both uh, redesigned by French uh, urban planners. Fascinating. I mean, perhaps to give some background to our listeners who may not be familiar with what's been going on uh, in the uh, the Levant in, in this period, in the Balkans in this period, why are these two cities, bur cities burnt? Why is Thessaloniki burnt? Why is Izmir, Izmir burnt? What's, what's going on there? Um, first, um, uh, many of our listeners will... Um, Know, would know that uh, Izmir and Thessaloniki are two major ports of the late Ottoman Empire. Um, they are significantly multicultural. There are many different ethnic groups groups living and working in the city. Um, they have important infrastructure being developed after the Tanzimat period, UK's uh, ports, railways, and so on. And after the Greek, after the 1912, after the Balkan Wars, Thessaloniki is annexed by the Greek Kingdom, whereas after the Greco-Turkish War of 1919 to 1922, Izmir is incorporated into the Turkish Republic. So um, something that um, maybe we should have, I, I should mention from the start is that um, it's two um, typical Ottoman ports, maybe in in many ways typical, and there are important differences as well, who which. Um, find themselves on the opposite sides of the border. Now, Thessaloniki uh, burns in 1917. We know that um, it is an accident starting from a, um, a specific house. The house has been found. Uh, the lady whose oven uh, devastated the city uh, was um, brought to court mm. and there were witnesses from each major community, from the Muslim community, the Jewish and the Greek, testifying and to, it was found uh, to be an accident. It is interesting because uh, whether it is an accident or not mm. interests a lot the insurance companies. Of course. If it's proven to be an act of war, for example, then they don't need to give compensations. Mm to the owners. So it, it is in the interest of the companies to prove that it's an act of war, but the a trial and uh, the witnesses showed that um, it was this um, unfortunate oven which uh, burnt down the city. 
Uh, in the case of Vizmir, mm-hmm. we know that it's an act of war. We know that the companies did not uh, have to pay anything. Um, it's uh, the fire is in, uh, happens in September 1922, and um, it starts from the Armenian neighborhood. Uh, there has been also a lot of research about it. Uh, you know, it's a controversial controversial topic about uh, who exactly uh, did what. Again, that was not uh, part of my research. Mm-hmm. Uh, I looked at in, into the um, uh, reconstruction afterwards, but we know for sure that it started from the Armenian neighborhood. Uh, and while moving towards the sea, it consumed the Greek neighborhood and uh, an important part of the European quarter. So, to in both the, the fires, yes, they happened because of very different reasons, mm-hmm. and um, the aftermath also is very, very different. Yes, maybe we could spend a little bit of time before moving on to your your nodes and your triangulation, just discussing this aftermath a bit. Yes, I mean, absolutely. This becomes a major challenge for both governments, mm-hmm. for the Greek government and for the Turkish government. An important difference, and um, if you look at the work of um, Aleka Hierolympos, uh, she has done an, an excellent and amazing work in um, uncovering all the story. The important difference is on the next day of the fire, the Thessaloniki, in Thessaloniki, the property owners are there, they're present in the city. Mm. Uh, it's important to note that the Jewish quarter has suffered the most. Mm. Small parts of the Greek quarter of Thessaloniki were burnt, but uh, the for the Jewish community, this was a, a catastrophe. The property owners are there. They form uh, the government forms a property owners association, and the whole area is expropriated in the name of that association. Mm-hmm. And the Greek government is very determined not to let the city be rebuilt the same way as it was before. It sees it as an opportunity to modernize the city, Mm. and it invites Ernest Abrage, prominent French Beaux-Arts architect, to um, conduct a new plan. In collaboration with Thomas Mosson, Aristoteles Zachos, and a couple of other uh, prominent uh, members of uh, bureaucrats and technocrats in Thessaloniki. So a committee is formed, headed by Ernesto Brar, a French architect, to design the new city. In Izmir, the population is not there anymore. Of course. Uh, the, uh, uh, the Greeks and the Armenians are gone, uh, and the um, municipality declares the whole area as agricultural land. Mm. There is a special decree um, o- dating already from the Ottoman times which allows vast burnt areas to be declared as agricultural land. It is a very, very difficult uh, period for um, the Turkish economy and uh, the municipality of Izmir. They have to struggle a lot. It takes them a lot of time to uh, rebuild the city. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they invite Andri Prost, another French architect, a Bozar graduate, to conduct the new plan. Andre Prost brings into the uh, group René and Raymond Danger, two more French, because himself he cannot fully commit to the project. Mm. Uh, and again, a new plan is conducted, and the plots are then sold by the municipality to um, in- the inhabitants of the city. Huh. Fantastic. I mean, that's such a really helpful overview for, for me as well as for our listeners, I'm sure. Let's let's perhaps talk about these French people for a little bit. I mean, um, yes. you mentioned that you chose to triangulate your study rather than doing an, a direct comparison mm-hmm. um, and that Paris is this other key key element. What is the French connection here? Why are they involved? What are they doing? What are they contributing? But also, I think one of the interesting things from your research is that you look at what they're learning as well in terms of their own domestic um, markets. Absolutely. So, um, Ernest Ebrard, Andri Prost are not uh, coincidental names. They are, um, f- they are Bozar architects. They are both um, Medici scholars. So, they won the Prix de Rome, a very prestigious French award during the, their studies, uh, which brings them to the, French ac- to the French Academy in Rome, the Villa Medici, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, study. Uh, so they become part of an elite group of French urban planners. Uh, they know each other. So they write to each other. They know of each other's projects. 
and certainly they don't just work uh, in France and they just don't just work in the Near East. Henri Prost becomes especially famous because he's the chief colonial architect in Morocco. He mm, knows very well the mm, North Africa. He collaborates with Marshal Lyoté, um, whereas Ernest Ebrard, after Thessaloniki, will move to French Indochina and design cities there. These people design new cities, whole new cities, uh, all over the French colonies. So the Near East is an is part of their professional practice in the international scene. It's important to note that there are neither exceptions nor typical, absolutely typical of uh, French urbanism. They are well networked, they belong to the same network, uh, they have seen the same education, and they belong to a group who has turned towards um, urbanism and urban planning and has a very specific architectural uh, position with regards to how cities should be designed. Could you give us a sense of how they think cities should be designed then? What are the kind of features that we would expect from this French urbanism that you describe? Mm, in both cities, um, in Izmir and Thessaloniki, uh, we see axiality, uh, large boulevards, intersecting with each other uh, in uh, specific squares. We see a, a center, a city center, which did not exist before. As you know, Ottoman cities were uh, usually divided into uh, different areas according to the ethnic group. There was a port, of course, there was a charge, but the administrative center was often in a different place. So there was not a heart, often there was not a heart of the city. Yes. Um, at least not in uh, these port cities I'm talking about. So one of the interesting features is this um, central uh, centrality, uh, these boulevards, sometimes on a grid system, sometimes intersecting. Um, zoning, zoning is very important. There is a very rational approach, positivist approach to the city. Where industry should be, where uh, working classes should be close to the industry, where the railways should be close to the port, where the bourgeois should be the upper classes, uh, schools might be in the same quarter. So there is a grouping of different different activities in the, in the city in a very rational manner. This is visible both in the new plans of Izmir and of Thessaloniki. And also, uh, another uh, interesting similarity is that both cities are designed to have a, a main square on the waterfront. So this relationship to the sea uh, becomes important. That is, I mean, when we think of a number of Mediterranean cities at this point, kind of turn their back on the sea in a way. So it's interesting that mm -hmm. uh, the sea should remain a key feature. Indeed. But I have to say that the French architects, these French architects are not extremely powerful. So you see, they might... Um, be working in uh, colonial contexts, or they might be working in the metropolis, and they might be working in the Near East. But their role and their power in each context is very different. Mm. Um, in the Turkish Republic and in uh, the Greek state, there are many stakeholders, and the these plans are negotiated and sometimes changed. Mm. Uh, for example, an, an important difference is that uh, both of them were interested, both Ernest Ebrard in the case of the Saloniki and Henri Prost in the case of Izmir, were interested in preserving some historical monuments. Mm. In fact, we know from the literature that Ebrard played a role in preserving some Ottoman monuments in Thessaloniki, apart from the Byzantine, Roman and classical monuments. On the other hand, in Izmir, there was no uh, political will to preserve parts of the past. Um, this rupture with the Ottoman past, uh, whether it is a Muslim past or a cosmopolitan past or a multicultural past, um, is uh, crucial mm. to the um, uh, foundation of the Turkish Republic. So um, uh, the squares are empty right. in a way. There w you don't see many monuments. You don't see monuments in the center of Just Israel. big windy spaces. Mm -hmm. hmm. So in terms of what they preserve then in Thessaloniki, how do they decide 
what to keep and what not to keep? What kinds of things do they give preference to? Is it aesthetic or is it things that could be remain functional or? This is a very good uh, question. The um, Greek nation building is based on a theory of continuity from uh, the ancient time to modern Greece with a specific emphasis on the classical and Byzantine periods. Although Roman uh, monuments and uh, some Ottoman monuments are preserved as well, uh, we do notice a prominence of Byzantine monuments of churches in the city. The Hellenistic grid of the city is preserved. It's brought up, so the new boulevards are um, drawn according to the old Hellenistic grid of the city. And the diagonals very often lead your gaze to a church, to a monument. So there is a kind of a narrative in the city. Somebody who visits the city walking through the new boulevards is directed visually and uh, physically, literally, to specific monuments. It's an interesting question to see uh, where is the Ottoman monument positioned, where is the Byzantine monument positioned. Hmm. That's fascinating. I mean, next time we walk around the city, we'll, we'll realize ourselves being drawn. Otto, uh, well, Thessaloniki is, a, is an amazing collection of oh. uh, architectural jewels, so <laughs> I definitely recommend No, definitely. Uh, it. In Izmir, on the other hand, an interesting turn to the story is the um, um, change of the plan to accommodate a huge cultural park. Huge culture park. If you go to Izmir, I really recommend you go to culture park. A vision of Bechetus, the mayor of the city in the 30s, uh, who is pretty much under uh, the culture park project is pretty much under attack today. Uh, there are various proposals to uh, do to, to open it to construction. Um, and it is, an, uh, in my view and in many people's view, a very important legacy of early Republican uh, urban planning and architecture. It's a very, it's a huge park which was designed to accommodate the International Fair of Izmir. Of course. Very visionary uh, with museums, uh, sports areas, a casino, um, a little pond. Uh, where you know the children uh, would play, so it was uh, designed as a university for the people, Halk mm. University, mm -hmm. metaphorically, a place where the best products of uh, human civilization would exhibit be exhibited, preserved, and uh, taught to the new to the new generations, and also a place for socializing and performing the modern identity, performing modernity. Plenty of spaces to be seen in that sense. Pla there. Yes, places of it to be seen. Um, and uh, indeed, uh, the, um, the Izmir plan is more a product of a negotiation hmm. between uh, the local Turkish municipality, uh, various actors and uh, the French planners, rather than, a out, uh, rather than a plan coming from the outside. Hmm. It's a good example of... Uh, you know, you can see the agency of different stakeholders. Excellent. And I suppose that's kind of a, a difference maybe from the later Ottoman period where it would just be a question of buildings being plonked in at the state's request wherever they wanted to. Or is, it, is that a difference or is that a similarity in terms of continuity? Mm, I would say that um, there are continuities, but in general, uh, in the Republic, in the nation state era, governments, whether local or central, do have more power mm to design and regulate the city than before. Excellent. You do see efforts in the Ottoman period as well, mm. but I would say that private interests mm. might actually be more effective in boycotting projects in the Ottoman period right. than in the, re in the Republican or in, in the Greek uh, nation state. That's really important. Excellent. Thank you so much. Let's return perhaps to our our French link. So we've got a really good sense of what their impact has been, this negotiated exactly. um, building of, of space in, in, in Greece and in Turkey. At some point, presumably, these, these guys go back to France. Mm -hmm. And what happens there? I mean, they've been around to Indochina, to Morocco, and now to the Middle East and the Balkans. What do they bring back with them? What kind of lessons or ideas do they take back with them? And what impact does that have in France itself? 
it does have an impact, an important impact, and this is something that we often um, disregard or neglect. Um, we often see these cities as recipients, one-way recipients of um, Western expertise or uh, Western influence. But these projects are these projects are exhibited back in uh, France, in Paris. They are uh, published in books, and most importantly, they are taught in schools of architecture and planning. Um, so, uh, for example, you will find in the same chapter of the book uh, Cours d'Urbanisme, uh, taught by René Danger in the École de Travaux Publics, you will find in the same chapter the reconstructions of Thessaloniki, Izmir, Manisa, and uh, other cities in the region. So, these projects appear back home and they are presented as French projects, as projects of French urbanism. Uh, they are perceived within the struggle of France to establish its own identity in the world of architecture, but also in the world of politics worldwide, in competition with uh, other countries. So it's fascinating for me to hear that these, these urban projects are then taught in France. And I suppose when you have a textbook, you have to think about examples, specific buildings or specific streets or something. Have you in your own research focused on specific buildings or specific parts of the cities? And if not, why not? If you have, why have you chosen those ones in particular? Is any buildings or ideas that you'd like to share with us that you've really caught your attention? To be honest, I didn't start off by designating, defining a, a type of building that I would like to study. But through, during my research, I came across a, a very interesting case study, which shows this third side of the triangle, the very strong connection between Izmir and Thessaloniki and uh, Greece and Turkey. And this is the project uh, for the University of Ionia in Izmir. It started as a, um, uh, a construction, as a building commissioned by the Young Turk municipality, the Young Turk government in Izmir to become a school of commerce. It is a building on uh, Bahribaba Hill, um, very close to Konak, if you know of Izmir. So um, this is a project starting in the 1910s, or somewhere in the mid-1910s, as a school of commerce. And as a parenthesis, this actually uh, reminds us of the importance of Izmir as a commercial uh, center. And um, it shows how the Young Turk uh, government, the Young Turk Party, is trying to take under control the way commerce is taught and uh, performed in the city. So a school of commerce is a state intervention in the way commerce is uh, taking place in one of the most important ports. But uh, the project stops during the First World War, and in 1919, the Greeks land in Izmir. And this is a period, 1919-1922, the period of the uh, Greek annexation of Izmir, which has been very much under-researched from the point of view of architecture. From uh, I'm sure it's, it's much better researched in the field of politics or history. Um, the Greeks find this building half-constructed uh, and uh, in an Ottoman revival style. It's important, important to point this out. One of the most uh, uh, prominent uh, Turkish architects of the period, Tahsin Sermet, had designed this building. And they, they decide to make it the base for a very visionary project for a university. Let's stop here and think of this. Greeks, the, the Greek kingdom only had one university, the University of Athens. And there was a lot of talk uh, to uh, establish a second university in the Greek lands with many candidate cities. Uh, Thessaloniki was a candidate. Uh, Chios was a candidate, and then with uh, the end of the, second, the First World War and the annexation of Izmir, Izmir became a candidate. It shows how much uh, of an ideological investment it was um, that they selected Izmir over Thessaloniki, Thessaloniki being a city secured already since 1912. So instead of going for the safe choice, they go for, for Izmir. 
I mean, why do you think they did that? I mean, they've literally just moved in and they must have some suspicions that not all the population is going to want to be ruled by them. So why why are they that confident? Or is it just simply idealism that, that this will work or this will make this work? This is a... Um it's not an easy question. It has to do uh, with um, the belief that the project is not just uh, the outcome of the campaign, the Asia Minor campaign. It is an active um, element in securing the success of the campaign. So if you like, uh, the military expedition uh, is the... So the, the expedition of the army is the military side of the campaign, whereas the university project seems to be the civilization, the mission civilatrice, yes. the civilizational uh, side of the campaign. So it's both a project seen as the outcome of the annexation, but also a project um, to facilitate the annexation, to facilitate the presence of Greece in the Near East, in, the, in Asia Minor. And um, Venizelos and Steriadis um, have no hesitation in inviting the best of the best uh, they have to make this happen. The organizer of the university is Constantine Karatheodori, one of the most renowned uh, mathematicians in the world, right. uh, very well established in Germany. Uh, son of uh, Stefan uh, Karathodori, who was the ambassador of the Ottomans in Belgium and then in Germany. Uh, and he uh, is in charge of the organization of the university, whereas an also very prominent architect, Aristotelis Zachos, is invited from Thessaloniki to complete the building and to supervise the construction of any other buildings necessary for the campus of the university. So note here that a building started by a Turkish architect and well-known Turkish architect is now to be completed by a prominent Greek architect. Yes. Still in this Ottoman revivalist style or do they change it a bit as they go along? It, they do and uh, they select um, very interestingly Byzantine revival. Huh. Not a million miles away perhaps. Not a million miles away, not at all. Uh, and... What you, the, the conversion does not happen to the full extent, but what is interesting is that in the proposals of Zachos, you can see both architects are very well, very familiar with the Beaux-Arts tradition. They're uh, educated. One is educated in Germany. The other one had uh, German and French professors. Um, they know very well the Beaux-Arts tradition. The um, conversion from an Ottoman to a Byzantine idiom just takes a couple of column capitals sure. uh, and uh, the change of uh, semicircular arches to pointed arches and the other way around. So very few, it, it's extremely interesting how very few changes in the idiom are found sufficient in order to change the identity of the whole building. Mm. Uh, the conversions in the facades of the building don't uh, happen, but in the interior of the building, even today, you can see uh, Byzantine-like capitals. But apart from that, apart from that, we have Constantine um, Karathodori uh, purchased a whole library and shipped it in from Austria. We have uh, documents showing professors from all over Europe applying for jobs. They wanted to work at the University of Ionia. And um, uh, we have uh, drawings of um, furniture. Furniture, uh, they were trying to, to order the furniture. And it's uh, fascinating to think that the front was uh, collapsing at, at the time. Or, the, the, yes, just some hundreds of miles into Anatolia, the front was struggling, but the people were so in, in Izmir was in, were investing so much in, in this project. Absolutely. I mean, you, I think you've said to me before that there's something quite surreal in a way about these applications to purchase chairs and desks when, when you know, the Turkish soldiers are not that far away, really, from the city. Yes. And they did want the best for, uh, for the university. 
Um, in, the curriculum is very interesting as yes, well. Yes, because it's, it's not just it's not just commerce, is it? Is it? Is it tended it, to be? It goes back to, and it also goes back to your question: Why Izmir? Mm. The curriculum. The first schools that uh, were uh, provisioned were agriculture and commerce, which are w considered to be very necessary for an important port uh, like Izmir. But another an important uh, school uh, would be founded as well, a school of ethnology, I think. Mm. In that school, uh, by the way, the university would be open to all ethnic groups, and to both uh, women and men. And in that school, um, Turkish, Persian, Armenian, Arabic, and Jewish language classes uh, would take place, history of art and archaeology, comparative linguistics, and Islamic law would be included. So let's think of the vision of uh, this school. It's a school which aims to train young Greek bureaucrats on the to, to train and to prepare them to deal with um, expanded Greece, Greece and a multi-ethnic Greece, a Greece who has uh, Slavic uh, populations, Turkish populations, Jewish, Armenian, and so on. And at the same time, it is a is a university which will allow these uh, ethnic groups to be well better integrated into the new Greek Greek kingdom. And later on, the School of Medicine would be, and uh, Islamic law would be founded um, on, a, on a second phase. I mean, maybe we can pause there and think about what this means a bit more. I mean, because to me, I mean, as an Ottomanist, that sounds very familiar in terms of its aims. You know, the, the late Ottoman education system in part is, is geared at, on the one hand, giving state actors access to the various cultures of the empire, but on the other hand, bringing in those cultures to be stakeholders in the state. So on the one hand, it sounds quite Ottomanist, but then there's clearly a different aim here with this, the great idea of, mm -hmm. of this enlarged Greek state. So what's its lineage? How do we make sense of this? Where are they getting this from? We can indeed see similarities in any case between the great idea and the um, notion of an empire. Mm. Um, of a multi-ethnic empire. So the great idea does take into consideration the fact that there will be many ethnic groups uh, living under uh, Greek administration. But um, yes, I agree. This is a project of nation building indeed, but at the, the same time, it shows an amazing inclusiveness in a way. Uh, it is very visionary. We tend to think of the Greco-Turkish war as a war of ethnic cleansing. Uh, so it is indeed surprising to come across this project because this project is based on the claim, the argument of coexistence. Mm. Which is not one we associate with, with those post-war nation states, for sure. Exactly, exactly. So it's, um, it's sad that it hit a dead end. It uh, never worked in a way. But uh, studying it helps us understand that these fights, these wars are not... Um, singular. They have many sides yeah. and uh, many ideological trends which maybe outplay each other. I mean, the other thing that I think that's quite interesting here, and this goes back to your point about what happens when these architects go back to France and they start teaching about Levantine and Balkan cities, is that you have professors from all over the world applying to come to Izmir which is not somewhere, something that we might have expected in the Ottoman period or, or indeed today perhaps either. And so it's, it shows that there was a, a, an aim of giving this place a space in, in the global education system, not as a peripheral entity, but as, at, at a, as a heart. And that professors saw it that way. Why? Because they wouldn't have applied, surely, Absolutely. if they didn't see it as something with promise. You are very right. It's very interesting that the slogan of the university, the logo of the university was Ex Oriente Lux. Ha! So, Fantastic. Uh, and that slogan does not mean that uh, the light comes from a non-Western mm. uh, civilization like we interpret it today. Mm. That's what how we interpret it today. But in the minds of the organizers, it meant that an expanded Greece, who had, which would have now incorporated Asia Minor, yeah. is now 
emitting the light of civilization from its new home mm. in the East to the world. So Greece sees itself as a um, heir of uh, the ancient Greek civilization, as an owner of this light, of this civilizational light, equal to the West, and sees itself as a, le a legitimate uh, actor and as a legitimate yes, sender of this message to the whole world. The Carthodori did not uh, feel in any way that his university would be a peripheral university. Right, evidently not. And uh, it's a wonderful what if, you know, if this had survived, who it might have attracted and what a center of learning it might have become. But as we know, uh, it wasn't to be. And the great idea turned out not to be so great after all. It did not. It did not. Absolutely not. Um, August 1922, um, they pack whatever they can pack. Um, they take all the books. They take some of the equipment, and they leave uh, the city. And um, the building becomes a teacher's um, school in the early years of the Republic, and then it becomes a girls' school. So the famous Izmir Kızılcaya, a very famous school in Izmir. Uh, what is fascinating then is that uh, the same building experiences three uh, successive ideologies. The Young Turk period, uh, the Greek occupation of Izmir, and then the Turkish Republic. It's, uh, the construction starts in the first um, world, and the inauguration, the opening, is um, at the time of the Republic. Yeah. I mean, it's lovely to know that it's still being used for educational purposes. That's a really great um, lineage. But I mean, I wonder... Are people in Izmir or indeed in Greece aware of this institution and its, its rich history or is this something that you've uncovered and need to spread around? People, uh, historiographies are very uh, fragmented. So the, yes, the story is very fragmented. The Turks know more about its story as a Turkish girls' school. It is written in um, many, in some books that this was used uh, as the University of Ionia, but with no, not much detail, just a, a sentence. On the Greek side, people know of the project of the University of Ionia more, but they have no idea about where it's a symbolic place, um, not in the real world, in the world of a collective memory, if you like. Yes. Um, they know about the project, but they know, don't know that it was a commercial school before, that it was converted, um, and that how it has been reused today. So it's worth looking at these buildings because at the same time they bring the different pieces of the puzzle together. Absolutely. Now, what about poor old Thessaloniki? So they lost out in the race to have this fantastic new institution. Did, after the collapse of the Anatolian project, did they receive further patronage or are they kind of left to stew? Where, uh, I'm glad you bring up Thessaloniki because um, the way there's a there's a unique way that the University of Ionia is connected to Thessaloniki, and that is that uh, it, the architect Aristoteles Zachos at the same time was working on the reconstruction of Thessaloniki after the fire. He was part of the committee uh, headed by Ernest Brar that I mentioned before. And he was also in charge of the restoration of the Cathedral of St. Demetrius uh, in the heart of the city, which was uh, demolished, was, was destroyed by the fire, was ruined by the fire. Uh, interestingly, the capitals, the column capitals inside the University of Ionia are strikingly similar ha. to the uh, columns of the burnt church in Thessaloniki. Wow. Probably... Uh, is that is my uh, theory? The architect uh, used the capitals of the church, which he knew very well, as a model for the capitals of the new university. After the uh, great idea collapsed, uh, Thessaloniki became the seat of the Second University of uh, Greece, but that was constructed. Uh, many years later. And with a slightly different outlook, I suspect, than that intended in, in Izmir. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm.
Welcome back. So I've been talking here today with Calliope Amigdalu about her research that's been thinking about Izmir and Thessaloniki and Paris and these wonderful links and these fantastic buildings and their histories. Calliope, what are you working on now? So you, the thesis is done. It's going to be turned into many beautiful publications, I'm sure. Hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so can you tell us a bit about where your research is going now? Are you staying in that region? Are you staying with that approach? Or what have you got lined up for us? I'm staying in the region. Um, but I'm moving to more contemporary stuff. Always related to heritage, though. Um, currently, I'm working on a project looking into replicas, mm -hmm. replica heritage. Could you so explain what that means for us? Absolutely. We've seen um, a recurrence of um, mm, re uh, revivalisms. So buildings being reconstructed in um, many cities in our region. Um, Istanbul is a good example where the Topçukışlası in Gezi Park would be constructed from reconstructed from zero, the Ottoman barracks of the early 19th century. So a huge replica um, of a past heritage, reconstructed, turned into a mall or uh, a mixed-used building. Uh, Skopje is another uh, good example. Um, there is a lot of uh, construction taking place in the city of Skopje. Many buildings of the early 20th century, which were destroyed during the earthquake of the 60s, right, yes. are being reconstructed. So the idea of a replica, the idea of um, uh, reproducing heritage and using reproduced heritage um, in the politics of identity is attracting me. In many ways, it's very close to what I was working before, but uh, it's very current, it's very contemporary. I mean, maybe we could start by thinking a bit about Skopje, because that's perhaps a, a city that our listeners and myself um, are less familiar with than, than the Greek and Turkish cities. Mm. What kinds of buildings are they looking to reconstruct? And what does that tell us about contemporary Macedonian politics and ideas? The main uh, project uh, taking place right now, and it's almost complete, is Skopje 2014. It's called Skopje 2014. Catchy. Catchy. And um, there are many uh, sides to this project. One is to reconstruct uh, buildings like the National Theatre, which were uh, demolished in the earthquake. Um, another part of the project is to dress uh, brutalist uh, buildings of the communist period with classical facades and in order to give the city a more European look, as this European... Uh, term is being perceived and defined. Um, another part of the project is to build completely new buildings in a revivalist manner, in a neoclassical manner, so buildings that never existed. And um, also we have, of course, the erection of many uh, many um, monuments and sculptures in the city, sculptures of Alexander the Great, uh, Philip, uh, and so on. So um, replicas are part of the story. It's not the, the full uh, project. And it, uh, what does it tell us? It tells us it, it is at the same time a turn to antiquity and a turn to a European identity. And that is what, what's very rich about it. And at the same time, it is a real investment in the economy. But then they seem to be kind of niche buildings as well. I mean, um, a theatre isn't necessarily going to be frequented by all the inhabitants of the city. Um, so, it, the, so it's the construction that they're really focused on rather than creating sort of long-term investment. Investments uh, attracting capital, for both foreign and local, so that's the aim, is very important. Interesting. There is a lot of uh, reaction from mm. uh, the inhabitants of Skopje, from activists, from academics, from intellectuals, and and from uh, minorities. But uh, yeah, this is a whole other uh, rich topic for uh, discussion. I'm sure it is. I mean, so how do you, as an as an architectural scholar and uh, architectural historian, I mean, how do you approach this? I mean. 
it, it might be quite easy, I suppose, to be kind of massively cynical about it and this sort of fake reconstructions and all this. How mm. do you... This is a danger, yeah. yes, indeed. Um, it is... These projects don't necessarily need to be um, rejected and, uh, cr you know, unilaterally criticised. Mm. There are many sides to them and um, one should be open to understand... Uh, all sides of the story. There are international pressures, there are local uh, interests, but in any case, turning towards uh, you, the West and turning towards antiquity is something that uh, we've, we've all done in the Balkans, right? Quite. <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, beyond. <laughs> and, and beyond. So it's not something probably people like us would be criticizing the Greeks uh, 200 years ago for doing the same stuff. Well, I mean, I was, <laughs> was going to mention the Greeks, I mean, because I, I guess they're not particularly happy about the Macedonians erecting statues of Alexander and Philip. I guess that, true, that, that, true. that beef is still going and on. What's uh, going on in Greece then? Because I mean, I think Athens, you said, is going to be one of your other case Athens, studies. Yes, yes, I, I didn't uh, uh, mention it. Athens is also part of the story. In that case, in the case of Athens, the replica is in a much, much smaller scale. It's in the scale of the um, architectural part of a building. Uh, I'm talking here about the Elgin marbles and their copies in the New Acropolis Museum. Right, of course. So we have uh, replica there, replicas there. We have the copies of the Elgin marbles who are um, passionately requesting their replacement by the originals who are kept in the city. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Lots of controversies there, there as well. What I would say is different, I mean, coming back to what I was saying before about uh, revivalisms now versus revivalisms 200 years ago or 100 years ago, uh, I think the quality uh, and the knowledge is changing. So how would you measure uh, that? People um, doing revivalisms 200 years ago had a very, very deep knowledge of uh, the ancient past and of antiquity, of heritage, of the symbolisms, of the meanings, of the stories surrounding each monument, each figure um, they used in their new idioms. Uh, today... And this is something which is uh, not just uh, in necessarily in Skopje or in Istanbul, but it, in many uh, contexts in the world. Today, it's more mostly about the facade. It's mostly about this uh, effect um, rather than uh, the depth yes. of it. The proportions, the, the references to the past are not well studied. Mm. You can see it for, for Chamlija Mosque is, a, is another example in Istanbul where right. you have a replication of a Sinan's mosque, right? Uh, there is there are reference there to uh, classical Ottoman architecture. But uh, when um, our friend Tahsin Sermet, I was mentioning before, was doing Ottoman revivalism in the early 20th century, he knew so well what Ottoman classical architecture meant. He had studied it, he understood it. Today, it's more about the effect uh, of the visual, the visual effect, rather than uh, the substance, I would say. I don't think that the, um, uh, these new reconstructions are paying the enough respect to the originals. Yes, in, I, th I, think, I think many people will agree with you on that. I mean, of course, and as you mentioned, a couple of examples here that are also kind of politically contentious. So this, this architectural development, this revivalism, this replication of old styles isn't neutral. It's very much done Absolutely in a, a bit of a cauldron. Absolutely. But uh, on the defense of replicas in general, it doesn't mean that uh, uh, replicas are uh, secondary uh, necessarily. Uh, they have a life of their own, they have a materiality of their own, and I'm open to explore them as um, autonomous objects. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to finding out more, and I'm very open about um, 
I'm not at all judgmental. I'm very excited about replicas. Sometimes I like them more than the originals. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Yes, don't worry about the Elgin marble copies. Uh, okay, they're probably better than in better state probably, than the ones we have anyway. Probably. <laughs> exactly. Well, I can say that I'm certainly excited about uh, seeing how your new research progresses, and I'm sure our listeners will be too. So we'll have to have thank you back you. when it's a bit more progressed. I hope so. Yes. I hope so. Well, for the meantime, Calliope, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. And um, thank you for listening. 